Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Last week, we saw David in action for the first time. Back in chapter 16, the Lord sent Samuel to Bethlehem to anoint for himself a new king, the one that would take the place of Saul, as we're seeing Saul's kingship sort of crash and burn as he's rebelled against God and proven to be proud and impetuous and not willing to wait on the word of God. God has rejected Saul from the kingship and he's chosen for himself a new king, although he's not yet king. And in fact, the anointing of David, even to this point, as we go through this chapter, chapter 18, is still a secretive thing. So it seems that really nobody outside of Samuel, the prophet, and David himself, and the family members of David who were present for the anointing, have any idea that David has been anointed. It's not even really clear how much is understood on the part of David about what that anointing really meant and and whether that anointing pointed to the fact that he would replace Saul as king. We're not sure exactly what David knows or understands at this point. But nevertheless, the anointing of David was a private act and is still largely unknown to the people of Israel. And most importantly, for how the story unfolds, to Saul. Saul, the king, does not know that God has anointed his replacement. So God has told Saul, I've rejected you from being king. And so he knows that his time is limited, is running out, but he doesn't know that David has been anointed to be his replacement. In chapter 17, we saw the young shepherd David go to the battle lines to bring some food to his brothers. And he observed that they were lined up for battle, but nobody was really uh, eager to go forward against this Philistine champion, Goliath, nine and a half feet tall, wearing lots of strong armor, carrying big, heavy weapons. Everybody was afraid. But David finally infused a little bit of faith, a little bit of an understanding of God's work among his people, and a heart that burned for the glory of God. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? And so David, of all people, humanly speaking, went out to fight the Philistine. And you know how the story goes. He didn't carry a sword. He didn't have armor. He had a sling and some stones. And he brought five stones, but it only took him one. He slung it into the giant's head, and down he came. And then off came his head. And he carried it back to Jerusalem as a token, a trophy of the the victory of Yahweh, the victory of God over the Philistines. And so we're fresh off of that staggering victory over the Philistines and the Philistine champion at the hand, again, just looking through human eyes, of this young, runty shepherd from Bethlehem. Of course, we know, and David knows full well, that the battle was the Lord's. And victory was because God was fighting on their behalf, because David went in the name and for the honor of God. And so now we come to the beginning of chapter 18, and that battle literally has just finished. 
And so in just a few verses, we're going to see the, the, the armies, led, of course, by Saul and then by David, returning from this battle. So uh, it's still going on. At the very end of chapter 17, as, at the, the, the victory over the Philistines, Saul began to inquire more carefully about David. Now, we know by the, at this point, David was at times playing in his court. He would play the lyre, some kind of a stringed instrument, something like a guitar, kind of a folksy instrument. He would play music in Saul's court to try to soothe him at times. But he gets very interested in who David is. And in fact, where David came from, and he inquired at the end of chapter 17, let's, let's learn about this boy and who his father is and, and kind of where he came from. And he said, the very end of that chapter, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. All right. And so now chapter 18 begins, and we're reintroduced to Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of Saul who, remember, would have been the king, right? He's the crown prince to King Saul. And if Saul had been obedient to God and not lost the kingship for himself, Jonathan would have eventually been his replacement. But David has, excuse me, God has removed the kingship from him and his family. And so, but we had seen Jonathan back in uh, chapter 14 demonstrating strong faith in God and acting boldly and courageously on behalf of God and fighting for his enemies, really doing the job that his father was supposed to do. And so the chapter begins, look with me right there at verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, so that was David and Saul's conversation, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. We'll pause right there just to consider what's going on here between David and Jonathan. It's, it's really remarkable. It's a remarkable display on Jonathan's part of humility and of devotion to David. Again, Jonathan was crown prince. And at this point, Jonathan doesn't know that David has been anointed king. But what he means by that stripping off of his, of his armor and his weapons and his belt and all these things and giving them to David is essentially he is pledging his loyalty and, and submission, if you will, to David. I think without knowing really that David is the anointed and coming king for Israel, Jonathan is, now he also would have been significantly older than David. So David is probably a teenager, at least a young man at this point, and Jonathan we saw some years ago was already fighting battles and leading armies for Saul. So Jonathan is, a, is an older man than David is, and so, and as the, the, the one in line for the throne, in all, by all accounts, he would be the, the greater and David the lesser in the kind of social standing and kind of understanding of this relationship. And so as Jonathan lowers himself and, and commits his own loyalty and devotion to David, there is a, uh, it is a remarkable act of humility as we see Jonathan humbly submitting himself to David. And their friendship 
which we have these strong words spoken about, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. This deep friendship between the two begins, and that will be an important part of how the story unfolds, and in fact, of keeping David alive, as we'll come to see. And so, and there's also kind of a layer of irony to this, uh, recognizing uh, Jonathan was to be the, the king, but now because of Saul's rebellion and subsequent rejection from the kingship, uh, nevertheless, Jonathan is holding David in such high regard, who really is his replacement. Jonathan would become king, but he won't. And now David is the anointed to actually take his place. So where you would might expect there to be animosity uh, and, and battling and competition in Jonathan's heart, there is none of that. There is respect. There is admiration. There is a humble submission to him. Indeed, David and Jonathan really kind of remind us of one another. In, this, in the reign of King Saul, we've seen so little faith in God. We've seen so little godly character uh, in the leadership of God's people uh, that, that really Jonathan and David are kind of the two bright lights that we've seen to, in, in the last several chapters worth of the story here of people who believe in God who trust him, who care about his glory and actively, courageously fight on his behalf. And so uh, it's little wonder why these two feel like such kindred spirits. It's sort of like this guy gets it in a way that nobody else seems to get it. Like Jonathan, I'm sure, looks at his father and goes, he doesn't get it. He doesn't care about God. He's not having, he's not fighting courageously or, or leading with faith in God. So when he sees David courageously championing the glory and honor of God's name and leading the people of Israel in that way, it makes sense that his soul was knit to his in, in this way. They were so uh, deeply, um, they had such a kindred faith in God and, and, and love for him. And so Jonathan humbly, the chapter begins with Jonathan humbly submitting himself to David and even in a way saying, uh, I'm, I will serve you, right? I, I am devoted to you. And we're going to see a starkly different response to David on the part of Saul. Not necessarily at first. At first, things seem okay. At first, Saul is glad for David's military success because what does military success under Saul's kingship mean for Saul? Hey, looks like Saul's doing a good job, right? A military battle under Saul's kingship means Saul gets a little more popular. means people think highly of Saul. So, and he's, we've seen already he's plenty happy to take credit for someone else's military victory. In fact, he did that with the victory that Jonathan won a few chapters back. When he said, King Saul has defeated the Ammonites, uh, or the Philistines, I think it was the Philistines. Uh, Well, kind of, right? It was really Jonathan, but Saul's taking credit for it. So at first, Saul seems to be happy with David's success. And we see there that he wouldn't let him go home, right? He took him into his own court. You're staying here. We need you right here. Now look at at verse 5, right after uh, this exchange between David and Jonathan. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 
So David is doing very well for himself. David goes out and has success, and so Saul gives him more and more responsibility. And so now he's a leader of, the, of some of the armies, at least, of Israel, right? So he's kind of become a general in, uh, in Saul's army. And this pleased all the people, and it pleased Saul's own servants. So right now, everybody's happy, right? David's winning battles. Saul's promoting him. Saul's, you know, name and honor is their king, and, and success is growing. Everybody's happy. The people love David. Saul's servants love David. It's all good, right? And then the plot thickens, beginning of verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, so this is right after that battle with Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And that would be customary for a king and his armies returning from battle when they had been victorious. Those who had remained back in the city, generally, mostly the women of the city, would have met them to celebrate. Yay, Saul beat the bad guys, right? And so they've got their instruments and they're dancing and they're singing songs. And look at, uh, there's a line from their song that bothers Saul just a little bit. When the women sang to one another, they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Do you see where Saul might get hung up? Now, we probably shouldn't assume that the, the women singing this song really mean any offense whatsoever to Saul. They're just using a, a classic form of Hebrew parallelism where you say one thing and then you say a similar thing and sometimes even kind of progressively kind of up the stakes a little bit. So they put Saul and David in equal position. Saul has struck down his thousands. David has ten thousands. They probably just mean that together Saul and David have been striking tens of thousands of God's enemies, right? So they probably mean no personal offense to Saul in the way that they're singing the song. But Saul hears that one lyric and decides to interpret it, uh, take it personally, shall we say. Look at verse 8. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have? but the kingdom, right? If they're already saying that David is more successful in battle than I am, and the people are celebrating his strength and success and leadership and victories, what more could he take but, but actual leadership of the kingdom, the actual kingship from me? Which, of course, we recognize the irony here. That is, David indeed has been given the kingdom by God, but Saul doesn't know that yet, right? And so the story takes an irrevocable turn here as Saul's uh, sort of insecurity, Saul's envy, Saul's fear of David begins to color everything that he does. And the ensuing drama over the next several chapters of 1 Samuel uh, really begin right here as Saul begins to be suspicious of David. He, he begins to plot against David. The crowds are celebrating David, the greater champion, at least that's how Saul interpreted, and he is distressed. You know, there is a real, just looking on the surface here, there, there's a real danger in this kind of envy, this kind of comparison 
to one another. It's very easy if you just take it kind of at a human level. It's very easy to see why Saul gets so twisted, gets so bent out of shape by this song lyric that seems to put David a little bit ahead of himself. And he begins to envy the love that the people have for David and to envy the success that David seems to have. Proverbs 14.30 reminds us that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. I don't know if you've ever been tempted to compare yourself to someone else. Uh, Perhaps you scroll Facebook or social media and you find there's that one guy or that one lady who just everything they say or post about their lives just kind of eats at you a little bit, right? You just kind of go, what more could he have but the kingdom, right? Ever have any thoughts like that about somebody else's life? Why do they have all the things that I wish I could have? Why do they get all the honor and the prestige that I really think that I kind of deserve for myself? And there becomes this very inward and proud and twisted way of thinking and feeling and the way we view others And as Proverbs 14.30 tells us, it rots the bones. It does not do any good whatsoever. We're going to see it leads Saul to very dangerous and deadly places, and it would do do so no less for us. So let's just take that as as we go through the story. Just a little warning. Let's, Let's note the deadly, perilous effects of envy and that comparison trap where we're looking at other people and comparing our lives and our possessions and our situations to them. It doesn't lead anywhere good. So, Saul has begun, verse 9, to eye David from that day on. He eyed David from that day on. So I think that means he's got a watchful, suspicious eye on David. And he's going to start making plans and actually carrying out some uh, some things that we'll see. Look at verse 12. Saul was, excuse me, this is verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Now, just a word about this harmful spirit. We saw it back at the end of chapter 16, the chapter in which David had been anointed. We saw Saul... Uh, It says in chapter 16, verse 14, it told us the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's the Holy Spirit departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And so God really is bothering Saul. We might think of this as something like conviction. Maybe it's just God trying to get Saul's attention about his sin and his rebellion and his brokenness, and Saul is not responding to it with humility. He just gets in a rage. He just, he, it says he's raving within his house, right? And so this tormenting spirit is back. And actually, it's, it uses a more active phrase uh, in verse 10 that we've seen before in Samuel. It says, the harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. Where, there, where else have we seen a spirit from God rushing upon somebody? 
Well, that's the way that Samuel described what happened to Saul when he was first anointed as king. It said the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and then he was to go out and defeat his enemies. And we saw that happen uh, shortly after that. I think back in chapter 11, where he defeated the Ammonites. It said the same thing. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he went and fought and defeated the Ammonites. So when the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, rushes upon a person, he fights. He courageously goes out and does the work that he's called to do, to fight against the enemies of God. This is really much the same, except it's not the Holy Spirit of God. It is a tormenting spirit from God who rushes upon Saul and he raves in his house. And let's look again in the middle of verse 10. Saul had his spear in his hand. Uh Uh-oh. We got a tormenting spirit rushing upon him. He's raving and he's holding a spear. This is not going to go well. And Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. So this harmful spirit is rushed upon Saul and he raves and he hurls a spear at David twice. David, I think, doesn't quite yet know that he really intends harm to David, like that he's out for David. Because we know David's time serving in the court and playing the lyre was specifically to calm Saul down when he was in one of his moods, right? Having some fit. I'm sure that the servants of Saul probably warned David, okay, he's, having, he's in one of his moods again, so be careful, right? So he knows. He's mad, he's raving, and he's chucking a spear. David happens to evade it, to get out of the way of it. But David probably at this point just chalks it up to, wow, he's just having a really bad day, right? Sometimes we make excuses for ourselves like that, don't we? I'm just having a bad day, right? Yes, I hurled daggers of hateful words and bitterness at you, but I'm just having a bad day. Just cut me some slack, right? Um, Maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook quite so easily. Nevertheless, David avoids being pinned to the wall, no doubt by God's mercy and God's help. And Saul begins to fear David. Look at verse 12. I'm going to read verses 12 through 16. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. There's that envy again, right? I used to have the spirit, now I don't. Now David has it. God's with him. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. Like, get this guy out of my court. You can go serve over there, right? Trying to get get him away. And he went out and came in before the people. And I think that just means now, instead of Saul, David really being in the court of Saul, spending most of his time around the king, he's now actually out among the people, which is good for David because he raises morale. And the people love David, and they love him more and more as he goes out and comes in among the people. David had success, verse 14, in all his undertakings. Why? For the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. The more time David spends among the people, the more the people just love him. Their hearts are his. They want to go where he goes, right? They they follow, they love David. 
And so this becomes just this cycle, this perpetuating cycle of the people love David more and more. And as David grows in the esteem of the people, Saul grows more and more restless and vengeful and envious and angry. And we see that key, we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but we see the key there to David's success is that the Lord is with him. That is the key difference maker for David, the presence of God, the blessing of God upon his life, which Saul no longer enjoys because of his own rebellion against him. So now Saul is going to start getting crafty and making plans for David. Look at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. And then we have a little secret insight here. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. In other words, the more battles I go send him out to fight, the more likely it is that some Philistine is going to kill him. So maybe I don't need to throw a spear at him to kill him myself. I'll just put him in harm's way. And so he offers his daughter, his oldest daughter, Merab, in, uh, in uh, marriage. And there's going to be, there would be a sort of a, a bride price. Like, if you want to marry my daughter, I need you to do this thing. He'll actually, that'll get more specific in just a minute. So, but David says to Saul, who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? So he sort of pushes back at that. I think out of probably genuine humility, going like, are you sure? I'm not sure this is right. Like, I'm not sure I'm worthy of that honor, that distinction. Maybe David's kind of at least like, I'm not sure I really want to be in Saul's family. He's kind of a lunatic. I don't know. But he goes, ah, you know, maybe, not, not, maybe that's not right. Who am I to be son-in-law to the king? At the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mahalathite, for a wife. So it seemed like plans were moving forward. Uh, to, for David and Merab to be married, but then when it was supposed to happen, she got married to somebody else. We don't have a lot of details about why that happened, but nevertheless, uh, David is not married to Saul's daughter. Maybe, whew, dodged a bullet there. Now verse 20, Saul's going to try again. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul's servants find out that his younger daughter has a thing for David, and they go to Saul and say, hey, you know, your other daughter really loves David, and I think she'd like to be married to him. And so Saul thought, verse 21, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And so now we see Saul descending into rage and envy to such a degree that he is now using his daughters as pawns to try to get back at David, right? I'll give him my younger daughter and she'll be a snare to him and maybe the, fan, the hand of the Philistines will be against him. And so now Saul goes back to David again or by his servants. He doesn't speak to him directly. You shall now be my son-in-law. Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. So they went and brought the message. And David said to his servants, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? So he makes the kind of same objection. I'm not really, I don't have the pedigree to be, you know, a prince, to be son-in-law to the king. And so the, the servants of Saul 
uh, go back and, and say that to Saul. Thus and so did David speak. Verse 25, then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. And so he says, if you want to marry my daughter, all you've got to do is fight the Philistines and specifically strike them dead and kind of force them to become converts, if you will, by circumcising them and bringing the foreskins to me. A hundred of them. This is lovely. So bring me a hundred of these Philistine uh, tokens and uh, then you'll be able to marry my daughter. And so look at verse 26, excuse me, verse 25. He says, that's the bride price. Then it says, now David thought, excuse me, Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So we know again that this is explicit in his mind. I am sending him into battle so that he will die, right? Verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Worst wedding gift ever. 200. So, nevertheless, Saul's plan has backfired, and backfired exponentially. He didn't just kill 100, he killed 200. He's like, I'll do what you ask. I see your bet, and I raise it, right? And so, so David returns now uh, with this wedding gift, delightful as it is, and uh, so Saul's daughter, Michal, marries David. Saul gives Michal to him in marriage, but his fear of David, of course, is not assuaged because he sees that Yahweh is with David. Verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. And we'll continue more of the story in the weeks to come. And that continual enmity between Saul and David gets bigger and darker and weirder and, uh, and, and on it goes. And yet you see here Saul's attitude toward David so different from that of Jonathan, his own son, who humbly submits himself to David, who pledges his devotion to him, who loves him like his own soul. Different from Saul's own daughter, Michal, who loves him and wants to marry him and indeed does marry him. Different from all the people of Israel and Judah who love David as he goes in and comes out among them and has successes. The people love him and they cheer for him and he is their champion, right? Even Saul's servants, we're told, love David. And we're pleased by David's sort of rise in uh, prominence. But Saul hates him. Saul is afraid of him. Why? Because of God's presence. This is the key, I think, to this whole chapter. It's the presence of God. We're told at three different times throughout the story. Back in verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. We're told in verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And then we're told again at the end in verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, 
and that Michal, his daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David. The presence of God is what makes the difference for David. Oh, how we need this precious treasure. The presence of God. It makes all the difference. David is protected because of God's presence. We see just this one instance of him being, having uh, the, the hurl, excuse me, the spear hurled at him and him getting out of the way. We see at least two instances of him going out to battle to fight the Philistines and returning victorious. All of that because of God's favor. David is protected because of God's presence. He's given the favor of the nation because of God's presence. And I dare say he demonstrates tenacity and confidence because he is strengthened and sustained by God's presence. God's presence is no less necessary and precious to us. Our lives and fruitfulness depend upon the presence of God. But let me say something about the presence of God that I think is important for us to hear. The presence of God is not something that we gain by emotional appeals or mystical meditation. There's a lot said and done and sung in our churches today that kind of equate the presence of God with like an emotional high, kind of this feeling of euphoria. When I'm in God's presence, I'm just like basking in this glow and feeling so wonderful. There's this emphasis on sort of like attaining somehow the presence of God in this emotional appeal. That is not how the presence of God is attained. The presence of God is a gift that is purchased for us by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is promised to us regardless of our circumstances. The presence of God is a precious truth that is objectively yours in Christ. If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ as your Savior, the presence of God is guaranteed you. It is yours. It is not something we have to like muster up or summon or somehow like work ourselves into a frenzy. Now I've achieved the presence of God. No, the presence of God is ours because of Christ. It's not about an emotional experience. And in fact, I would say that the presence of God often is not even felt. You often might feel like God is nowhere to be found. You might feel like your prayers hit the ceiling. You might feel like when you read the Bible, you don't totally understand it. and You don't feel warm fuzzies about it. You might feel like God is distant, but that's not the truth. The truth is that God is with you. He's promised to be with you. And the presence of God is not about a feeling anyway. The presence of God is about empowering us to carry out his mission. It is about protecting us from the snares of the devil and the temptations of the flesh. It is about uniting us to the person of Jesus so that all that is his becomes ours by faith. The presence of God, Christian, is yours. Believe it. Know it. And live in it. Saul is angry with David. Saul is afraid of David. Saul is in fearful awe of David. Saul becomes even more afraid of David, down in verse 29 at the end of this chapter. We see throughout the chapter, Saul's response to David and the presence of God in him is 
fear and envy and anger and rage. And it reminds me of that psalm that Carrie read for us earlier. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Isn't that what's happening here? You've got Saul, a king of the earth. He's really king of God's people, but he's not trusting God. He's not God's king anymore. And he is setting himself against Yahweh and against the anointed of Yahweh by fighting against him and seeking his death. A proud, godless king rejects the anointed one of God and seeks to kill him. Meanwhile, the crowds love him. And their king seeks his destruction. The son who would sit on David's throne, born in David's town, born of David's line, would attract just such polarization nearly a thousand years later. In John chapter 11, after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, we see these starkly contrasting responses to Jesus, beginning in verse 45 of John 11. You don't have to go there. It said, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus had just such a polarizing effect on people, didn't he? He had crowds who loved him and believed in him and followed him and worshipped him. And he had people who disbelieved. He had people who said, I don't think this guy is who he says he is. And then you've got the people in leadership, the chief priests, the Pharisees. These are the ones who are in charge of the sort of spiritual life of the people of Israel. They are plotting to kill him. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Just as we see in David and in his time, we see that David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, has this as well. While the wicked plotting of those in positions of authority against the anointed one of God may seem like really bad news, the truth is that God works salvation for his people through these precise schemes. For a long time, he protected Jesus from their schemes because his time had not yet come. And we see in the book of John several times where he's in the crowd and the people pick up stones to throw at him or something and he escapes. It says because his hour had not come. So there were times where God protected Jesus because it wasn't his time yet. Kind of like David evading the spear of Saul. But when the hour had come and the Roman guards took Jesus into custody, the Father's redemptive plan unfolded in exquisite, mournful, worshipful glory. Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God, would give his life in the place of sinners and his death would become our salvation. Praise God for the way that he works, even through the plotting and the rage of people who would set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. So, just to close, here's the question that faces you this morning. Who will claim the loyalty of your heart? To whom will you yield your allegiance? 
Will you, like Jonathan, knit your soul to the soul of the Lord's anointed, that is, Jesus himself, granting him the rights of royalty and the place of authority in your life? Or will you, like Saul, resist him, reject him, oppose him? Will you cling stubbornly to your pride and autonomy? I call my own shots and thereby be excluded from God's presence forever. This is what's at stake in what we do with Jesus. Or will you bow your heart, yield your life, crown Jesus as king over your soul and receive as a gift the glorious grace of eternity in his presence? Let's pray together.